again, fellow travellers, or sadly, should I say, fellow non-travellers. Welcome to podcast 16 in our series, You Should Have Been There, with me, Meg Webb. And me, Simon Calder. But let me first ask, how have you been doing over the last week? Uh, I think reduced circumstances sorts us all out, doesn't it? Um, I've been spending a lot of time online, which is never a healthy thing. Um, but one aspect of it is that you can sound out other people. Um, so we'll get on to my um, survey of people's top travel icons in a moment. But um, something which is actually happening as we speak, I'm asking, let's look ahead at July. Let's assume that the no-go warning is lifted let's assume other countries want us and let's assume flights are in place and some people may say those assumptions are uh, ridiculous here we are his um, his simon wood saying um, anybody and this is directed at me who thinks that we'll be spending hours in close proximity to hundreds of strangers to go on holiday in july borders on the delusional but um, would you go and you think most others wouldn't, one-sixth of people, by far the winner is, yes, I'd go and many other will, but that's still not even half the people. So that's a kind of snapshot three months ahead of um, uh, what should be one of the peak holiday months. Anyway, it's a a, a time, of course, of um, great anxiety for anybody who works in the travel industry, whether people will race back to uh, make up for lost travelling time or whether they'll say... (laughs) abroad not really sure about that i think the gloomier headlines in this morning's press suggest that this might actually carry on for at least a year in some form or another because until we get a vaccine the dangers posed by this virus are going to continue there will certainly be problems caused by it i'm sure for a year in the sense of restrictions but my uh, lovely daughter poppy is traveling to Portugal in July, early July, I'm 80% confident that she will be going. And the, the main obstacle, I think, to that is is simply whether airlines are so reduced that they actually cut back flights and lots and lots get cancelled. We shall see. But, um, I mean, travel, you have to be optimistic, don't you? Maybe I am over-optimistic. I think you're more uh, glass half full and uh, I am certainly glass half empty, particularly by about um, nine o'clock in the evening. (laughs) Half empty. Well, I didn't say it was the first glass. Uh, Anyway, um, let us continue. I am fascinated by this travel icons business, partly because I haven't really had anything to do with it. So um, tell me more. Ah, okay. well, what all this was, was um, a bit of fun Um, in order to keep um, glass half full, to keep optimistic, to keep looking forward. Let's just see what uh, the world of social media regards as the the, the world's top travel icon. Um, And it rapidly became clear that, uh, well, a lot of people... (laughs) haven't frankly got much else to do especially me and that um uh, it was going to have to be a kind of world cup style tournament with a group stage where the two top ones go through and then knockout stages and sorry to interrupt but what are the travel icons what cat what are the categories well i'll I'll give you an idea i mean anything from um marvelous uh human creations such as 
uh, the Taj Mahal, um, Machu Picchu, which of course is a, a glorious Inca citadel in the most stunning terrain, um, to the Grand Canyon, which I would say is the work of um, nature or God, whichever you prefer, or both. Um, and then, of course, ancient wonders like the Acropolis in Athens and Stonehenge. Oh, yeah, I see. And, and have you got human beings involved in this as well or not? Well, I did at the end. I conducted a Twitter poll of the world's greatest human travel icon. And the winner is male and alive. So you're, you're going to have to try to uh, guess who that is. Uh, right, let me just think. But I'm interested in your suggestion as well. The suggestion that I put forward, but maybe I'll talk about that in a bit if there is time, was Robert Louis Stevenson. But um, let me think, in these days, it's obviously someone who would be generally considered a celebrity. Oh, yes. yeah. You know, someone who's on our screens a lot. So that would discount some of the great travel writers. I mean, let's say Paul Theroux. Oh, look, I know who it must be. I mean, you can't be an icon at a youthful age, can you, really? It's, it doesn't seem right. You've got to have uh, crossed a few seas and uh, experienced a few uh, desert winds. I reckon it must be Michael Palin. Uh, yes, very good, very good. You will have to wait a few more decades before you are a travel icon, of course. Yes, it, it was by, by a wider margin than anything else. But um, the physical travel icons, um, interesting little, uh, uh, just the highlights of the group stages, since there's no sport going around, let me just run through them. Uh, Taj Mahal comfortably ahead of uh, the Eiffel Tower in Group A, Sydney Harbour Bridge did all right, but the London Eye was pathetic. Group B, um, which featured some quite quite interesting things. So Machu Picchu, um, one with but not a huge majority ahead of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Treasury Petra and Angkor Wat did well, but not well enough. In Group C, Athens and Stonehenge got trashed. Christ the Redeemer in Rio did far better than either of those, but the winner was um, the Grand Canyon. And the only icon to get more than half the vote in the opening round was the Statue of Liberty. Uh, we're on to the quarterfinals. Mick, I hope you're paying attention. I am, yes. The Taj Mahal saw off um, Edinburgh Castle by a ratio of two to one. The Statue of Liberty very, very narrowly beat the Eiffel Tower. Um, of course, Eiffel heavily involved in both of them. Good old Alexandre Gustave. Third quarter final, all South American affair, which I know you like, between the uh, Incas in the shape of Machu Picchu and the Christians. Uh, Christ the Redeemer and Peru came out well ahead of Brazil. And in the final round, oh dear, Leaning Tower of Pisa, I think, bowed its, um, itself in shame after losing effectively four to one uh, was the ratio against it by the um, the Grand Canyon. So semi-finals we've we had uh, Grand Canyon seeing off the the Taj Mahal and then um, 52 to 48 that's an interesting uh, result in any referendum. Uh, Machu Picchu just edged out the Statue of Liberty. Do, would you say both of those semi-finals went to extra time? No it, it does but but look the, there was then a 30 minute final vote and all the way through because I was watching it the Grand Canyon held a narrow lead but then some last ditch votes in the last couple of minutes saw Machu Picchu draw level 435 for each icon <laughs> um I I wonder what to do do you um, go back to previous results in which case I must say the Grand Canyon would certainly win uh, um do you ask um I guess someone like um 
Um, Sir Keir Starmer, newly elected, um, he might have a view on it. Or do you just say, yep, 435 votes each. That shows that nature and man are synchronised somehow. But um, it's so, so interesting to see how big tourist attractions like the London Eye are utterly dismissed. And and, um, the Grand Canyon, I'm not sure if you've been there, Mick. I've been there a few times. Uh, An extraordinary thing. But there are probably better canyons elsewhere in the world, but you can't get to them and you can't get a burger. Ah, well, that's a very good point. First of all, though, let me address this tie. I think there are ways of resolving this. First of all, we could ask our own listeners to uh, send us a message at uh, anchor.fm slash you should have been there and let us know whether you would cast your vote for Machu Picchu or the Grand Canyon. Or there's another easier version, which is we have a golden goal. The winner is Machu Picchu. Um, it, it wasn't offside. It has actually won with a controversial goal in the uh, very last minute. And the reason I voted for it is that I've been to Machu Picchu and it is fantastic. And I haven't been to um, the Grand Canyon, so I don't know about that. Is that fair enough? Uh, it, look, I, I'm not going to revisit, but I, I like the idea of, of, of a golden goal. Yes, and I I suppose since you are on your way to becoming a travel icon, then I will take that into consideration, I think, much in the manner of a a judge who is sentencing. Okay, but also I would like to just pick up the very interesting point you made about uh, other canyons are available. There's a canyon in the north of Argentina, which is reasonably difficult to get to but I mean not if uh, you're prepared to make your way to the beautiful colonial city of Salta and then either get a bus or rent a car and then drive down south to Cafayate a wine growing city another rather beautiful place but on the way you go through a canyon called the Quebrada de las Conchas the canyon of the shells which is utterly utterly beautiful and of course has very few visitors but it's filled with amazing rock formations in an astonishing variety of colors you know green red orange and if you manage to uh, time your visit so you get there as the sun goes down i think it is one of the the greatest natural sites i've ever seen i'm fascinated by your argentinian canyon because if i'm heard correctly and bear in mind that we are as always Uh, socially distancing by some miles you go through the canyon um i thought you might go past it or indeed um maybe even in the manner of the colorado river higher upstream um at uh, hoover dam go over the canyon but you go through it yes you do go through it yeah yeah Uh, i mean the fact that you can go through it rather than just look down into it is gives you a very different perspective i mean it's open enough for the sun to get down there and uh, highlight these astonishing rock formations fantastic before we leave the uh, travel icon subject in the rear view mirror of our minds um i'm intrigued why you thought robert louis stevenson um is a travel icon rather than say uh, thomas cook who decided to democratize to industrialize travel for the masses so go on then Okay, let me make my case for Robert Louis Stevenson, I think we should call him, who lived a brief life from 1840 to 1894. He was born in Edinburgh, 
His father, in particular, was very well known for building, designing Scotland's lighthouses. Uh, and anyway, anyway, Robert decided not to go into that business, and uh, instead uh, he. Uh, embarked on uh, a career of writing and of travelling. One of the things that appeals to me about him is that he, in fact, suffered from what, sadly, uh, we've become all too familiar with uh, in the last few weeks, which is underlying health conditions, uh, including TB, periodic fevers, all kinds of things, which would have kept most of us at home. But he kept going uh, throughout uh, his his problems and uh, uh, and even in fact uh, enjoyed a good cigar from um, time to time which of course is probably extremely unwise but uh, I believe he was picked up on this by a, a doctor friend who and said something along the lines of life is short enough let us not um, forego some of its few pleasures anyway his writing which is I suppose why uh, I'm interested in him is mainly based on some well-known novels, Treasure Island, Kidnapped, and, of course, the strange case of um, Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde. But he also wrote a couple of uh, really fantastic travel books, and I think that the best of them is Travels with My Donkey in the Cévennes, which was the sort of thing which, at the time, I don't think had ever been done before, but has now become an absolute staple of travel writing in which the traveller just goes on a journey with something that he or she has some trouble managing, tries to get a lot of comic stuff out of it and at the same time observes what is going on around them. This has been taken to what you might call absurd conclusions with things that are actually quite funny but uh, rather more on the sort of tricksy end of things like travels around Ireland with my fridge for example which uh, I, I have read and I did laugh at, but uh, I think Robert Louis Stevenson's um, travels with his donkey in in the very beautiful French southern mountains of the Cévennes is um, a class apart. Um, but but it, it seems random to the point of lunacy. I mean, of all, if you're going to create a genre, that's absolutely terrific. But um, you know, um, going round Kent with with a goat, I would say, would be a heck of a lot easier in those days than um, travels in the Cévennes with a donkey. Just saying. Well, that's true. I, I mean, I should say that he actually, uh, although an Edinburgh man, um, had become, uh, as a young student, uh, extremely taken by France. And he he lived in Paris and he actually was, and I think this is true of many Scottish people, um, more of a Francophile uh, than he was an Anglophile. Um, and in fact, there is, I found in a, uh, another book of his, uh, essentially it's one of his letters, actually, uh, <laughs> the following um, uh, assessment of the merits and defects of the English and the French. So here they go. Um, the English, hypocrites, good, stout, reliable friends, Dishonest to the root, fairly decent to women. And now here, uh, in balance, is his view of the French. Free from hypocrisy, totally incapable of friendship, fairly honest, rather indecent to women. I don't suppose you could get away with that sort of thing now. Uh, presumably you could then. Um, and did did he, I, I would like to know what he said about Scots, apart from finest race known to uh, heaven or earth. I think that, that in its early years, and by that I mean uh, early centuries, 
travel writing as it was, and that includes um, the great Marco Polo, who unfortunately didn't make it out of the group stages, I don't think, in your um, competition, was very um, prone to making um, wild generalisations about the people that he met. I mean, it was part of the game in the same way as you might say how long the road was and how bad it was and how good or bad the inn was where you stayed. You would also describe the people with no holds barred. (laughs) Yes, and, and uh, I, I think it's good that we can't anymore, but I think it's good that we could then, or he could then. I agree with you. Just to give you an idea of his writing style, and, and indeed of his, uh, I think, very keen eye for observation, can I give you an idea of what sort of thing he wrote? Here is a, a short extract from um, the uh, travels with his donkey uh, in the Cévennes. He'd set out from a, a small town called Le Monastier, where he'd hired a donkey called Modestine. Um, and uh, on the first day, um, he realised that actually it was very, very hard to get um, Modestine to go uh, at anything above. Well, I was going to say walking pace, but it's her own pace. And this is how he describes it. God forbid, thought I, that I should brutalise in any way this innocent creature. Let her go at her own pace, and let me patiently follow. What that pace was, there is no word mean enough to describe. It was something as much slower than a walk, as a walk is slower than a run. It kept me hanging on each foot for an incredible length of time. In five minutes it exhausted the spirit and set up a fever in all the muscles of the leg. And yet I had to keep close at hand and measure my advance exactly upon hers. For if I dropped a few yards into the rear or went on a few yards ahead, Modestine came instantly to a halt and began to browse. And then he meets somebody who says, Your donkey, is is it very old? I told him I believe not. Then he supposed we must have come a long way. I told him we had but newly left Monastier. Et vous marchez comme ça? cried he, and you're going at that sort of speed? And throwing back his head, he laughed long and heartily. And anyway, the upshot of it is that uh, this fellow, who is, of course, a local and understands donkeys, plucks a switch out of a thicket and began to lace Modestine about the sternworks, (laughs) uttering a cry. And the rogue pricked up her ears and broke into a good round pace, which she kept up without flagging and without exhibiting the least symptom of distress, as long as the peasant kept beside us. Her former panting and shaking had been, I regret to say, a piece of comedy. Yes, they don't write them like that anymore, um, unfortunately. But it's good that you have brought us that. Um, what, what, a, what a joyful, joyful, um, exuberant bit of um, southern French fun. Have you spent much time in the Cévennes? I, I did once go to the Cévennes. I went on a walking um, holiday there with my partner, Steph. This was many, many years ago. And uh, I, I do recollect the first day when I tragically misread a map and instead of walking for a very decent 15 kilometres in the uh, what was the boiling heat uh, ended up uh, walking approximately 30. 
which was rather more than uh, either of us had intended, and particularly um, more than she had uh, signed up for. Anyway, let us um, let us uh, hurry on. Um, although I should just one more thing in favour of uh, Robert Louis Stevenson was he was who coined the absolutely brilliant um, travel phrase um, which uh, many of us have used or certainly heard and which has indeed been the subject of one one of our splendid podcasts. Um, To travel hopefully is a better thing than to arrive. If you do divide up the journey and the destination, as a writer rather than as as a traveller, do you prefer to write about the journey or the place that you get to? Oh, always the journey, of course, because that is what uh, things happen in the course of a journey. Of course, when you get to a destination, you want to meet interesting people and encounter interesting things. But it's really what happens along the way that's, that's so important. And um, just before we went into this lockdown, I found myself with with a very simple 90 minute flight from um, somewhere in Saudi Arabia to Cairo, which was abruptly cancelled the night before, um, whereupon, of course, um, I then had to uh, uh, get into a whole series of buses and cross-border taxis and hitchhiking and uh, negotiation, which was, um, for, from a an interest point of view, far, far better than, than um, just hopping on a plane and being in Cairo. So, yes, the journey, always, always. And um, you, you've had some thoughts about that in your very first one. I have indeed. Um, over the course of the last three weeks of, uh, of virtual lockdown, I have um, let my mind um, wander backwards in time and was trying to um, recreate for myself my first real journey and the one that made the greatest impression on me ever Uh, and it was to Spain Uh, it was in 1966 it was actually at the time when England famously won the World Cup and do you know what I did I traded in World Cup tickets for the semi-final and the final in order to go on this journey at the time, can you imagine anything more astonishing or mad or stupid? But at the time, I really didn't think that England could possibly get through. So therefore, sold these tickets and uh, went on a journey with a friend called Gerald Bernstein, who wasn't really a friend, but was the only person from my school, by the way, which is the one that Keir Starmer went to as well, um, uh, who was prepared to go with me. And... Um, We travelled down through France on a train and then somehow made our way to the outskirts of the beautiful little Spanish town of San Sebastián. And I will um, read you a little bit from my notes, retrospective notes. The idea was, by the way, that Gerald and I were going to sleep on the beach uh, at San Sebastián because we'd been told by some dodgy chap we met in the youth hostel in Paris that the great thing about Spain was you could sleep out on the beaches and no one gave <laughs> no one gave a monkeys about it. Okay, let's just read a little bit of this. San Sebastian's beach, called La Concha, which means the shell, was, and I reckon still is, Spain's most beautiful town beach, just begging for us to stretch out our sleeping bags on the perfect crescents of sand. Two other lads a bit older than us were already there. We exchanged some of our wine and grapes for their dried sausage and brandy, 
before the fringe of white water lured us all whooping and laughing into the sea for what was my very first midnight swim. Our new neighbours were French, and as we got shivering into our sleeping bags, one of them confided with a conspiratorial grin, Si on est des problèmes, j'ai ça. He rummaged in the rucksack which he was using as a pillow and brought out a pistol. <laughs> I shall leave that there. I think it'll be a cliffhanger. And maybe next week I will tell you what happened. Um, obviously it didn't end too badly, otherwise I wouldn't be here now. But it might have done. Uh, that, that's uh, wonderful. And of course, San Sebastian. And now, I, I many questions arising, not least. Um, how much did you get for your semi-final and final tickets? And of course, that was when... Uh, England famously beat West Germany for two, um, controversially, some would say. Um, uh, and, and was that enough to fund your trip? First of all, that's what I need to know. Uh, well, the answer is I really can't remember, strangely enough. I mean, I think in, um, nowadays when I travel, I do actually, uh, for, for all sorts of reasons, keep all kinds of receipts and indeed... Um, do accounts of the journey, you know, for um, good bookkeeping reasons. Um, and uh, but in those days, uh, certainly not. <laughs> um, and the the other point is, of course, that San Sebastian was the entry point for many of us. Um, my parents wouldn't let me travel to Spain, as I think I've mentioned on. Uh, you should have been there before until. Uh, Franco, the dictator, had had gone, um, which he did in 1974. Oh, sorry, 1975, and then I went there in 1976. So ten years behind you. Um, but uh, San Sebastian was the first proper city that you reached when you had hitchhiked through France, and so um, yeah, it was a, a very um, uh, exciting um, beginning. Um, I ate sardines. I stayed actually in a hotel, um, a very, very cheap, uh, cheap hotel, uh, which I did try and find. Um, my my pals and I, and I'm not sure if you and Joel Bernstein did this, but um, we went back 40 years on to um, rediscover it. We couldn't quite finish it, find it, but we did have a much easier time, which cost far less relative to um, average wages um, and was infinitely more more comfortable. So uh, San Sebastian, I think both of us would rate as uh, one of the great unsung cities. Good stuff. And I will just to answer briefly your question before indeed we um, sign off for this week. No, Gerald and I didn't go back again because I think it's fair to say that we got on together about as well as Robert Louis Stevenson and his donkey Modestine. Not uh, that uh, I was forced to... Um, beat Gerald or him to beat me but um, uh, we did uh, we did find that we were not um, travelling companions made in heaven <laughs> oh no um, where, 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 where did this become apparent because there's always a point I, I have graphic graphic um, memories of, of um, uh, travelling with people and it becomes apparent at a particular stage in a particular location that it's all all, um, all gone wrong yeah, I'll, I'll park the, uh, when Gerald and I knew... Ah, well, when we do group travel in, and travelling with other people, that might be a very fine um, element to bring in, wouldn't it? Where does it all go wrong? Yes. Um, so, uh, I um, have greatly enjoyed travelling with you to, um, through the past darkly, and I'm looking forward to our next adventure together, uh, which I 
presume, even though we we, we do not know for certain at this stage, uh, will be another socially distant uh, broadcast. Um, so I would like to talk about travel and poetry, and indeed poetry in motion, if you want to go that far. Who can quarrel with that? So poetry in motion, uh, it's going to be. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Mick Webb. And from me, Simon Calder. See you next time. Mm-hmm.